Hey there all you cool cats and kittens and welcome back to another episode of Best in Sass, where each week we take you behind the scenes for conversations with some of Silicon Valley's best and brightest operators and investors. Crack a beer, get comfortable, and join us on our quest to find the patterns and playbooks that accelerate the sprint to 10 million of that good stuff, that repeatable stuff, that stuff we call ARR. Super excited to welcome Jen Spencer to the show today. Um, Jen comes from a wonderfully different background than many uh, typical sales and marketing leaders, having started as a, as a high school teacher and then winding her way into becoming the tremendous sales and marketing leader that she is today, having grown many companies. Um, Jen, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And are you telling me that most people don't start out in as 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 high school teachers and then I end up in sales and marketing? <laughs> I mean, I guess not. I uh, I think you <laughs> might be the first on the show. So I, I'm really fascinated and excited to hear hear how that journey happened. Maybe let's let's just start there. Like, how how does someone go from from uh, having a, a passion for teaching students to I'd imagine now you have a passion for uh, for teaching companies how to how to grow. Yeah, I think I think the common theme there is I have a passion for telling people what to do. So, <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I mean, I really I I started my career as a teacher. Um, interestingly, like not not just not because I I love you know kids. I, I taught high school. Um, I loved my I love my area of of study. So I love English. I love writing, composition. I love discourse, arguments, and I like packaging things for different audiences. So I was a marketer and a salesperson well before I realized I was a marketer or a salesperson, and. I made my way from teaching over into this this world uh, by way of nonprofit professional theater. I, I took a job as um, like a, a education liaison type of role at a nonprofit regional theater, Arizona Theater Company. Uh, after I had been volunteering with them uh, for for a, a little over a year, and from there, I you know after six months of being there doing education type of work and kind of aligning uh, educational curricula to what we were producing at the theater, the marketing director at the time was like, "Hey, you know, we've really been looking for someone to do PR, and I think you'd be great at it." And I said, I, I really don't know anything about marketing. And she said, I think you do. Um, and <laughs> then, and really the rest is history because I, I spent eight years there. And, and by the time I left, I was the director of sales and marketing. I was responsible for um, all of our earned revenue um, versus the contributed that comes from donations and 75% of the seven and a half million dollar revenue goal that we had was on my team's shoulders. And, uh, and so I just kind of got thrown in and, 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 you know, honestly, when you are trying to position, let's say, why Julius Caesar is important to a 15-year-old boy, when you're trying to explain, draw those connections and align that content and align the messaging and what you want them to get out of it to that audience, hmm, you know, that sounds a lot like sales and marketing. So it's actually not not a, a crazy, not a crazy journey when I think about it. So you were just in training that whole time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. With the yeah. hardest audience of all, which is which teenagers. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I I did my I, I did my uh, student teaching in middle school, 
Um, and that is that is something I do not wish on anybody. I think people who teach middle school, who teach like seventh and eighth graders, they are they are saints. Um, and so I that was that was uh, that's where I, I really kind of earned my stripes, I think. So I love this this um, kind of saying that you have this all hands on deck leadership. Um, and, and I remember reading that, you, you know, this is super important to you. I'm curious, like, what does that actually mean to you? And how have you carried that forward in all of your roles? It's, you know, it's, it's that I, I subscribe to this idea that, you know, we're, we're really all in this together, whatever this is, whether we're talking about business, we're talking about our personal lives. I am definitely a, uh, have that kind of tribe mentality, right? Something that really resonates with me because when I think about anything I've achieved, any success, like there, it's not all on my shoulders, right? It's not all my doing. There's always been people around me that are supportive. And I've been fortunate enough to have leaders that I've worked with over the years who are truly all in, all hands on deck, worked for leaders who never would ask me to do something that they wouldn't do themselves or, you know, that, that they didn't feel was, was, you know, was worthwhile. Um, and I've always respected and appreciated that. And so it's something that as a leader, I now, I try to try to do. So I applaud those CEOs who will be on the front line and, and, and be an SDR for the day or be a customer support representative for the, for, for the day. I think, I am not seeing enough of that. I love to see more of it because until you've actually walked in each of your team members shoes, you really don't know what their day to day is like. And if the more context you have for the world that that they live in and the role that they play, the better you as a leader are going to be able to support them. And it doesn't mean you can make all their problems go away, but having that empathy, I think is so critical to really leading and inspiring a team. Certainly. That's such a great message. So uh, I'd love to bring us onto the topic of the podcast itself, Best in SaaS. Um, As you know, each episode, we're trying to uncover one little nugget or a couple of nuggets um, from each guest's career as we try to unpackage that sprint from a million in ARR when a company kind of has just figured out their product market fit, let's call it, to that elusive first $10 million milestone. Um, it, thinking back through your career, I guess if, if you were to pick two or three highlights that we'd talk about, I'd love to dig into those stories and see um, you know, where, where you have discovered tricks or strategies or just these evergreen moments that you keep coming back to in everything you do now. Um, yeah. So my first, the first truly SaaS company that I worked for was a company called NetTime Solutions. And it was a small software company in Scottsdale, Arizona. And it, I had the most amazing opportunity with NetTime because the CEO, I was, I was an inbound marketer, a content marketer. CEO said, I really want to build a direct sales channel because the company had been selling almost exclusively through channel partners, which was great. And the company, you know, he had a nice lifestyle business, but the goal was acquisition. And so he was like, listen, I got a million dollars. I want to spend it on marketing and I want you to tell me 
you know, I want you to tell me uh, what, what we, how we should do that. And that's such, that was an amazing opportunity because I was able to go in, put in the systems and processes, everything from scratch that I wanted with the security of knowing, you know, there was a successful, you know, a successful organization kind of beneath me to support me. So I wasn't you know, freaked out about the idea of failure. I mean, I'm always freaked out about failure, but, but I think it, it made me feel a little bit more safe. And so I could take some more risks. And what I loved also about that opportunity was I was brought in to build a marketing engine and build an inbound demand generation engine prior to building up the sales team. And even just giving me actually like just two months of runway made a world of difference to be able to go in there and kind of get everything really well set, really um, align our brand. The brand was a little bit all over the place, identified the value proposition, really identify, like really uh, focus in on the messaging, conduct buyer persona research so that by the time we were bringing on salespeople, we had a pipeline of leads to be feeding them. And we went from feeding four sales reps with leads to you know, to 12 and then 14, all in the matter of a year. And then we were acquired by paychecks. And that was, it was so, that was so awesome and so, so successful. Um, and then after, you know, seeing that through and staying on board and making sure the transition happened nicely, going over to Allbound, which was a completely different type of situation where, we were starting from scratch there. When I joined the team, we didn't have a product. We didn't have funding. I mean, the, the, we had ideas and we had some mock-ups and we had this, this hypothesis. And I went in there to build that market, lay that marketing foundation. And I actually was marketing by day or marketing by night, I'm sorry, and then selling by day and then adjusting on the fly. But again, the success came from the CEO, the co-founders knowing that marketing was important and that it made sense to actually lay this foundation for buyer persona work, content strategy, create a demand gen pipeline before starting to just throw a bunch of sales reps and quotas, you know, in, into a, a very young organization. So you mentioned something there that I think is so key and frequently misunderstood or, um, just struggled with on both sides, um, CEO side, founder side, and and the operator and the marketing and sales seats uh, about around the foundation, right? You talked about taking the time to uh, really think through the personas and lay that groundwork. Um, how have you been successful in setting the stage for that blank space where, you know, you're, it's not exciting for anyone else. It's not, you know, nobody's looking forward to the, the air quotes downtime of persona work and messaging work because it, to that, to everyone else, it's like, oh, well, we're, they're like leads aren't coming in yet. Um, and this seems to be the thing that's in the way. So how have you found success in, um, building yourself that space with the other stakeholders? I think especially, more technical founders, they, the common, you know, theme that I hear is they think their product is amazing. They think it's the best. And they think if only people can see it, if we can just get someone to demo our software, they're going to love it. They're going to buy it. And that's such a scary message that I, that I hear from folks. Um, where I've had success is in being extremely transparent. Um, it's, 
It's creating a, uh, you, you, you don't need to take a year or six months to build that strategy, to do some persona research, to understand what someone's pain is and how your product or your service could potentially help solve their pain. It doesn't take that long, but you have to start with something small and then iterate on it. And so persona research, um, messaging, it's not set and forget. The most important thing for an early SaaS company is to just be comfortable with the uncomfortable and be prepared to be agile and share internally how you're shifting things. So if I think back to it at Allbound, our our CEO had he had an idea of who he was sol- we were solving a problem for. And he had like a few different personas. One of the personas that he was convinced we were was going to be one of our buyers, they just they ended up not being one of our buyers. And the way that I was able to explain that was through the the leads that we were getting, what 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 was resonating with folks, this initial sales calls we were having, and then sharing that feedback, um, kind of aggregated. So going back to using using that data, sharing it with the entire organization, and then saying, based off of what I'm hearing from people on these sales calls and the interactions we're having online, and what kind of content people are most interested in, what are the blogs that they're reading, what pieces of content are they downloading. What videos are they watching? Based on this, my guess is we need to slightly shift this persona to this other person. And this is why. And when you lay out those data points and you have a plan and then you say, okay, and let's test this. Let's spend the next two months testing this persona and see what the the, the effects are. It, it, it became hard to argue with, right? It was like, okay, it makes sense. It was just logical. So I think you got to strip the emotion away, especially when you're working with a founder. This is their baby. You know, some some people, like they put their entire life savings into getting this business up and running. So I think as a marketer and as a salesperson too, like you have to understand that perspective, but also use data to be able to help tell the story. And not be afraid to, to to say, hey, you know what? We got something wrong and we need to make an adjustment. Um, I, I think that's that's how I would recommend approaching that kind of a scenario. So I think bringing up adjustments is such a, such a great place for us to take this. So um, when you are looking at an experiment or a set of experiments or even maybe something that wasn't an experiment, but you're, you're looking at the data and you have the timeline, like how long you ran this experiment, if it was one, and then you have the signal, right? The results of the experiment. How do you go about deciding when to call it, right? Like I know time and time again, you'll have founders or other executives push back and say, all right, enough. Like this thing's been running for a week. It's performing really poorly. Let's like, let's call it a loss and move on. But you know, that's, it's a really subjective kind of problem space. So how in your experience have you found success, um, both in running successful tests and getting enough data, a substantial data that you can say to the other executives or the founders, Hey, this is, this is right. And we should either move on or double down. I think it's, it's really going to depend on the level of effort and the cost associated with whatever that experiment that test is. So I would be more 
you know, more willing to let experiments go a little bit longer and collect more data if it's at, um, you know, it's, it's a lower level of effort for my team uh, or, you know, for, for myself and which equates to kind of the, the, the ultimate cost. Um, if I'm going to be making an investment that, you know, that takes some kind of capital, right? I, I'm going to want to know, I want to have done my research, my homework to determine what do I think a smart goal for this would be. So that way it's documented and you have that to look for, back at and you're able to eliminate your bias and eliminate, you know, any kind of emotion that might go into that decision. But, you know, it, it, it is, it is tricky. It's, um, there are things that we do that we kind of continue to do as, as marketers, as sales professionals, um, that don't necessarily make sense. And, you know, for just for the, for the business. Um, and it, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it can be hard. I talk to people all the time when they come to SmartBug, they're looking for help and they might say, Hey, last year, our inbound marketing efforts, um, like the customer acquisition cost for inbound efforts was a 10th or less than like what the customer acquisition costs were for outbound. But yet all of our outbound efforts are given like 5X budget to, to inbound. And that kind of stuff just, it just blows me away because I don't, I don't understand the logic of it. Um, and, and that's something that we kind of will try to help support and say, okay, what, where would this CAC need to be in order to get you more and more additional investments so that you can, you can fund this initiative and having those honest conversations with those leaders to say what, you know, what does success look like to you? I think knowing that up front is, is, is really important before you start to even launch into any kind of an experiment. I think that's fantastic. So I want to put you into a, a scenario and and kind of hear what your response would be. So let's say, you know, you jump into another startup, they've just found product market fit, their sales team is starting to get some repeatability and you're brought in as the, the chief revenue officer. Um, the board says, hey, all right, Jen, what's your plan? Give us like your top three plays, just what you've done in the past and, and what you're going to bring to the table right now um, over the next 90 days. Where do you start? All right. So I'm going to hold you to the fact that you said that product market fit has been established, right? So that's yeah. Okay. Yep. So because, uh, and I, we have to just like take a moment and just like address that because yes. unfortunately that does not always happen. Um, so we, you know, we, we have prospects and clients that kind of come to us and they really haven't established product market fit at all. And, and it's, that's really tough. So, but once you've established product market fit, that's beautiful because that means that you're solving a problem for somebody. And so the very first thing I want to do, if it hasn't been done already, is I need to build out those buyer personas. I need, and I'm not talking about, we sell to a head of HR at a software company with 3,000 employees. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about understanding what their day-to-day is like, where they go for information, what success looks like to them, what are the things that cause them stress, what are the things that cause them joy, who are they as human beings? Because at the end of the day, you're, you're solving a problem for another human who, you know, turns off their computer 
hopefully, you know, at the end of the day and has the rest of his or her life that, that they're, that they're living. So I want to understand those personas because the more I understand those people, that's the information that I would use to build out my marketing strategy and determine, okay, um, are we, does a, a, like a straightforward inbound strategy make sense? Does a hybrid inbound ABM strategy make sense? And what are the types of messages and what are the verticals that I could create sub campaigns within that are going to be relevant for this audience? So it starts with really knowing those people. That could be, that's, and that's actually getting on the phone with them. That's actually getting on the phone, talking to those customers, uh, preferably people who have recently purchased. Um, so they, it's fresh in their mind. What, what thoughts, you know, were, were swirling around in their head when they made this decision? It is good to talk to salespeople and it's great to talk to customer success people as well, because they're the ones who are on the front lines living with and, and talking with those those buyers on a regular basis. But those people also have biases and it's important to have those direct conversations. So that, that's the like the very first thing that, that I would do. Um, and when you're doing those persona interviews, you've got this this captive audience where you can you can ask, you know, where where did we not meet your needs? What was missing from the sales process, as an example, that would have been helpful? And that's where you might start to dig into, well, you know, we really, we struggled with getting this over the line with IT and security. Like that's something that might come up. Oh, interesting. Tell me a little bit more about that. What is your internal process like? And from those conversations of understanding what that what the buying process is on their end. From there, now I would be able to start to kind of organize the type of content I know I'm going to need to prioritize first. Because what I found is I got no shortage of ideas. It's just a matter of what's the best idea at you know at the best time and what needs to be, how things need to be prioritized. So once I have that information, then I can start to create an editorial calendar and make sure that that editorial calendar is in alignment with our, our sales goals, kind of the demand gen goals that we have for building pipeline, but also in alignment with our buyer personas. When is a busier time for them? When are things, when is it slower for them? You know, what, what is that kind of, how do we align the marketing process with what their buying journey is going to be, which may unfortunately be different from, uh, like, a, a the, the, the sales motions that are happening. So. Doing, doing those pieces and then producing the, those, well, actually, before I even get into content, it's also then making sure there's the right technical architecture, technical infrastructure to support these efforts. So it's, I've been, yeah, I've been burned before where I think, oh, kind of reorganizing my like lead qualification, lead qualification instead of my marketing automation and not lead scoring, but like basic lead qualification. It, this isn't critical right now. We're getting so such few leads right now. Not, that's not a big deal. Um, the forms, you know, thinking about progressive profiling on forms and what I might have, um, you know, just, let's just get out there. Let's just start throwing things out there and seeing what sticks. Unfortunately, what happens is when you're successful, that momentum just keeps building. And then you don't have the luxury of looking back and making those adjustments or the further you get, 
the harder it's going to be to go back and make changes. So getting that foundation in a good place from a technical infrastructure perspective with your marketing automation platform, your CMS for your website, and your CRM, and making sure that things, that the data is flowing correctly and that you've got the right foundation in place to allow you to scale I think that's also really important before you start launching campaigns, because it's also going to give you the data points that you need to say if the campaign was successful, which will then, you know, inform your editorial calendar and so on and so on. Amazing. So I'd love to shift gears now into the, the, as we wind this thing down, that all of this information has been so helpful. And I'm sure some of the founders out there and other operators, um, whether they're in sales or marketing, have learned something. I know that you sit on the board of Girls in Tech, and so you must be a mentor and inspiration to so many women out there. But I'm curious to turn this around on you a little bit and and ask who in your career um, have you looked up to and and seen as a mentor or an inspiration uh, in your professional life? I, I owe so much to my my, my CEO at NetTime Solutions, Behan Sade, uh, who I believe is, is he's still with with Paychex, you know, who had acquired us. And the reason why is because he he spent time with me to ensure that I had a really firm understanding of the technical architecture of our product. And he ta- he spent that time and, ta- and and taught me. And the way it all started out was, I was trying to just extract just information from his brain. I was trying to be a good content marketer and say, "Hey, come, you know, share with me your viewpoint of the market, this time and attendance world, which I I knew like little to nothing about, to be honest, at the time. And maybe we can just schedule like thirty minutes once a week, and you can download this information to me. I'll take notes and then I'll convert it into blog content." And that actually transformed into these hour-long weekly whiteboard sessions where I really got to learn about the difference between the differences in, in API integrations, um, the difference in the, from a, a, a competitive perspective, the integrations we had versus integrations of our competitors. Our product was a fully, you know, fully cloud-based uh, SaaS product that, whereas our competitors had on-premise solutions that they had converted to to the cloud, and and there was a difference. And it was so important that I really understood the way that that the way that the technology worked. Um, and I appreciate that he took that time. I, I, and, it, and it might have been frustrating. I mean, talk someone to be like an engineer talking to a marketer about about this kind of stuff without any kind of background. I mean, I. I was eager to learn and I think, you know, that he appreciated that. But having that foundation, that helped me so much moving forward. It helped me in the way that I communicated with our product team, with our sales engineers, with our sales team, with our buyer personas. And it's something that I've been able to take with me even today as I'm speaking with SaaS founders, I'm speaking with SaaS CROs, marketers, heads of sales. I I have a really firm understanding of the pains that their organization is going through at, at the heart of their company, and and those are the those, that knowledge I just appreciate so much. So I've just I've really like I said like really appreciated him spending that time with me. Um, it wasn't someone I if I would have gone looking for a mentor at the time 
he wouldn't have been first on my list, really. I mean, what do I have to learn from uh, someone who was essentially like a, a CEO CTO? I didn't really, I think, want to be a CEO. I was a CTO uh, who built this product, but I learned so much about marketing and sales just by spending time with him. And I and I and I love I love that that he gave me that opportunity. And so I think there are opportunities for for folks to find those mentors within your own organization. They may just not look or sound like the kind of mentor you think you need at the time. Wow. Sounds sounds like that was such a tremendous, uh, almost like uh, an opportunity that you didn't necessarily know was there immediately and then presented itself and, and just took shape. So um, how wonderful that that was there for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and is there anyone else that you'd want to uh, mention while we're here? Um, the other, the other person that I've, you know, kind of just later, more recently in my career that I've really looked up to and reached out to is Trish Bertuzzi. So, um, when I, when I first built was when I joined Allbound, um, it was, it was funny, you know, I was hired to grow, to, to run marketing. And then like literally like day three, the CEO said, I know we hired you for marketing, but I, I'd like you to also run sales. And I had never run a sales team. I had worked very closely with the sales team at, um, at NetTime. And, and I guess I shouldn't say I never run a sales team because I did run sales at, at Arizona Theater Company, but it was more box office telemarketing. It was B2C. So I never run sales at like a B2B company, let alone like a SaaS company. And I was petrified, right? Like, oh my gosh, like how am I going to do this? Um, but there were two books that I read uh, to kind of help help me. One was Mark Roberge's book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. And then the other was uh, Trish Bertuzzi's the, um, Sales Development Playbook, just to help me kind of get the right frame of mind for the hiring that I was going to be doing and building this team. And so I, I knew her then. And then it was it was interesting. We were at an event and and she kind of came over to me and said, hey, like, I'm a fan of yours. And I was like, what? How are you? A fan? I, what are you crazy? And, <laughs> and it was just one of those cra- this is weird, you know, meeting someone who you think is just unbelievable and and that they she even knew my name. I was just blown away. But since then, it's like I've reached out to her to say to ask for some like just gut checks on things. Um, you know, I do speaking. I am sometimes, you know, paid to go speak at events and or deliver workshops. And the first time, you know, someone said, Hey, what's your rate? Um, what, what, you know, what would, what would it cost for to have you come out here and, and do this workshop? I, I had no idea what to say, you know, and, and, and Google did not, you know, it just failed me. And I, I said, okay, well, who, who can I trust? Right. And so she's been someone that I've been able to go to time and time again, just to ask a quick question. You know, we don't have any kind of regular cadence or rhythm, but I know that I, she's just a good person and I can go to her and I can ask her for advice. And I, I appreciate that so much about her. Wonderful. All right. Last question for you. And I have to go here because, uh, because I, I learned this about you when I was doing some, uh, some reading, I, I hear you love scotch. What's your favorite <laughs> scotch and why I'm also a fellow scotch fan. Oh my gosh. Um, I do, I do love scotch. Um, I'm, I I do like kind of like scotch from like the Highland areas. Um, my favorite scotch uh, at this point in my life is Oban 14. 
And I say at this point in my life, because I'm guessing there's probably something that's way better that I just haven't had yet. (laughs) (laughs) I just, or I haven't uh, been willing to pay for yet, but, uh, but that's one of my go-tos. It's just like, it's, um, I think it's smooth, but it's also kind of strong. I also, I love wine and I love, um, really bold cabs. And so an Oban 14 reminds me of the Scotch equivalent of like a really nice, like kind of Camus or silver oak cab. Sure. Wow. All right. Cool. Love it. Love it. Well, Jen, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to be on the show. I know there was a ton of, uh, of valuable insight in here for the listeners, um, and it was a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks oh, again. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me.